0: masks for family? Check. Garden cleanup? Check. Schedule back pain visit? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe.
1: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, happy Hanukkah, my friend.
2: Thank you, Leslie. Happy Hanukkah to you as well. Um, we've been recording this podcast now for, I believe, three consecutive days, uh, which is a, which is a little bit like the miracle of Hanukkah as well. It was supposed to uh, it was supposed to be a podcast recorded in one day, and instead was recorded over eight nonstop magic days. Uh, but on the bright side, if you're looking for a way to kill extra time this weekend, this is an extra jam packed podcast.
1: Yes, it's also our 99th episode, Dan. I'm very excited about that number because next week we have our big year-end episode for to celebrate 100 episodes. We're officially syndicated. No, we're not. But it's 100 episodes. And in the TV world, that's a big deal. And it's a big deal to me. So
2: I thought you were going to say this just fulfills our Debmar Mercury uh, 1090 um, commitment. <laughs> and we can finally go off the air now. So whichever one.
1: If you're a listener and you, and you don't work in the industry and you know what Dan is talking to, please email me because I, I, I might have some work to give you. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, 100 episodes. It's uh, we're, We'll be there next week. And we have a very special guest who we'll tease at the end of this show. But before we get... I'm, I'm very far ahead of ourselves here, Dan. But so let's just get that. just. I was going to say, forget, right? forget this episode. That's I'm excited.
2: Going to be an hour and forty minutes to an hour and fifty minutes, and let's just get to next week's episode. Sorry I mean, to the come uh, on. To, to the three guests who, four guests. Sorry, four, four guests. guests who we have in this podcast later. It is, as I said, jam packed, and for all of our guests, none of them relate to our number one topic of the week. So. <sighs> let's yeah, get this the ep- headlines. This, this
1: episode won't be as long as the Disney Investor Day presentation, but it'll be not- close.
2: We'll be close. nothing is as long as the Disney Investor Day presentation. And at some point we can talk through when segments on this podcast were actually recorded, because let's let me assure you it's not in order. But yeah, whatever.
1: Well, <laughs> well, here we go. Let's let's we're gonna start with headlines. Leading off Critical breakout How To with John Wilson has been renewed for a second season at HBO, which has also picked up Industry for a second run. The Premium Cable Network has also announced early development for a reboot of True Blood with the Riverdale creator and none of its original stars attached.
2: And none of my attention or interest attached. Uh, But you can also (laughs) listen to our interview with the creators of Industry from episode 94 last month. Over at Showtime, the Premium Cable Network has tapped Emma Stone to star alongside co-creator Nathan Fielder, an executive producer on Critical Breakout How To with John Wilson, in the Softy Brothers comedy series The Curse. Elsewhere at Viacom CBS, Paramount Plus, the soon to be rebranded streamer formerly known as CBS All Access, they've greenlit an iCarly reboot featuring three of its original stars in your face. None of the original stars on True Blood. It will join a slew of content from Nickelodeon on the streamer, including the SpongeBob SquarePants Spir- or Pants spinoff and feature film.
1: Over at Netflix, the streaming giant has inked a deal with popular meditation app Headspace and will launch a series focusing on, well, meditation and sleep, starting 1st in January. The streamer has also tapped Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes to star in a limited series called True Story. And rounding out a busy week at the streamer, Nicolas Cage will host a docuseries called History of Swear Words, which is exactly what it sounds like.
2: So from Oscar winner Nicolas Cage to Oscar winner Julia Roberts, who will star in the Apple Limited Series, The Last Thing He Told Me, from yet another Oscar winner, Reese Witherspoon. Additionally, For All Mankind has scored an early third season renewal ahead of the premiere of its second season.
1: And it gives me great pleasure to say this one. P-Valley creator Katori Hall has signed an overall deal with Lionsgate that includes a fund to mentor other Black playwrights. And you can hear more from Katori Hall on her plans for P-Valley and beyond within our showrunner spotlight from episode 78 in July. One of my favorite interviews that we've done this year, Dan. For sure.
2: Over on broadcast, NBC late last week announced that Superstore would end its current sixth season, but we didn't really have time to go back in and do a pickup announcing that. And ABC has picked up Home Economics to series, answering the question, where's Topher Grace at? He's in Home Economics, coming to ABC, expected to air in the spring.
1: And rounding out headlines in executive news, Jamila Hunter has been promoted to exec VP originals at Freeform, which has also enlisted former Quibi head of documentaries, Jihan Robinson, to lead alternative programming. Alongside network president Tara Duncan, the top three execs at the Disney-backed cable network are all women of color, Dan.
2: Excellent progress indeed. And with that, let's jump into a busy, busy, busy top five for the week.
1: Number one. Leading off, we just sat through four hours of a Disney Plus presentation. Actually, as we record this, the Q&A portion is still going on. So they're over four hours at this point. But it was, yeah, there was a lot of news, Dan, um, on the TV side, on the on the film side, but... Um, one of my big takeaways came from the Q and A, where uh, Bob Chapek, the Disney CEO, said that of the 100 titles that Disney announced today, and keep in mind some of those were new and pre, you know, already announced over the past year plus. But they said 80 percent of them are going first to Disney Plus, and that includes all a lot of television stuff and, and some of the film feature films that they've been working on, Dan.
2: Though ultimately very little of the feature films that they've been working on, I would say. I, I mean, I think there was some question at the beginning of the week and certainly last week with the big Warner Brothers HBO Max deal of whether – That was going to simply open the floodgates and everyone was going to start saying, "Okay, our entire slate is going to whatever and that's how it goes. Um, That was not the case. In fact, I would say that of the theatrical releases that they teased, uh, Raya and the Last Dragon was probably the biggest of the immediately upcoming movies that had been intended as theatrical that is now going to Disney Plus on March 5th. 2021 day and date. But Disney Plus, again, with premiere access in the same way as as Mulan. So there were a lot of people speculating on a lot of big titles. You know, everyone, the the juicy title that everyone was going, "Ooh, is there any chance it's going to pop up on Disney Plus was, of course, Black Widow, because that's the Marvel title that's been kind of on the shelf and available and and basically bumped around
1: on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Desperately trying to escape and being seen by the world. But obviously, that is a title that Marvel thinks is a large worldwide theatrical title. Of course it is. Um, and yeah, that that will just be going theatrical day and date next May and day and date theatrical, only not Disney Plus. So
1: yeah, and, and they are doing Pinocchio and the Peter Pan and Wendy movies as on Disney Plus as well. But, you know, to, to me, the, the big piece of this is streaming. We've been saying it all year with all of these executive restructures. And I sound like a broken record at this point, but. Everything all of the realignments that, that have been done is to prioritize streaming. And we saw that in a huge way today where they Disney Plus announced some updated subscriber numbers that were just blew everything out of the water. I mean, you're looking at 137 million combined subs across all three of Disney's direct-to-consumer platforms, 86.8 million of them at Disney Plus, that's in 13 months then you've got another 38.8 million on hulu and another 11.5 million on espn plus and then you know at the at the tail end their projection including global expansion which was a huge part of their uh, of their presentation um, this week they're projecting 300, and 300 between 300 and 350 million global subs by the end of 2024 so yeah and you're getting this all for in the us uh, effective in march for a dollar more so 799 a month which is still A bargain comparative to Netflix and HBO Max.
2: It is it is definitely the numbers were impressive and the numbers they helped underline again why a lot of people thought that last week's HBO Max Warner Brothers deal was a panic because of how bad the numbers have looked for for Warner Brothers and HBO Max in its rollout. And, you know, if you if you look at it, these are basically platforms that are branded after the big name brand within the company. But for whatever reason, Disney Plus was able to cut through as here is the clear streaming service that we require you to subscribe to. Here is how you're going to do it do it as opposed to all of the confusion that HBO Max produced with with people. And, uh, you know, we keep talking over and over again about this simple confusion of how HBO Max screwed up that rollout and how they've had to backtrack and how it's done serious damage to a fairly good platform. Whereas I use Disney Plus at this point so rarely I I watch I watch the continuing adventures of uh, of Grogu every week. Spoiler alert!
1: And spoiler alert! uh,
2: It's just Baby Yoda's name. Whatever Uh, you can call him, Baby Yoda, if you want. Uh, you can hell, you can even call him the child if you're part of the Disney merchandising arm. Um, but yeah, like in terms of content, they have basically been able to bank on a very, very good library on one that's extra- an
1: understatement it, it's
2: no it's a it's a fantastic library there's no no one's arguing with that but the, in terms of breakout shows it's basically just been the mandalorian that's that's all it's been and so yes we can look to 2021 and you know heaven knows the investor portfolio presentation included a lot of clips from wandavision which continues to look really really good and from uh The Falcon, the Winter Soldier, which I continue to call the Falcon, the Winter Soldier and the Snowman, uh, which is a strange crossover. Um, But and that's
1: and that's due in March. Yeah,
2: that's due in March. I'm not sure that one looks as good, but it looks interesting. And then, you know, just all of the titles that they're throwing out. So I believe the deal was 10 new Marvel TV titles and 10 new Star Wars titles today. Is that that, what?
1: That's their goal. Yes, that's what they said. So they're obviously ramping up production and, you know, there were an insane amount of of Projects announced today, films, TV series, you know, and we can run through some of them. But, yeah, there's they announced a bunch of new Star Wars shows. They announced a bunch of new Marvel shows. And they also revealed that they're spending a spoiler alert, an insane amount of money between all three DTC platforms. So Disney, Hulu and ESPN Plus, they're spending between 14 and 16 billion dollars per year. And and that's their that's their total content investment right now. And it shows because they have said they want 100 plus new titles to launch per year, including animation, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars and National Geographic content. And when you think about the fact that we are here 13 months after Disney Plus launched and the biggest narrative was great, they have the Mandalorian and then they kind of screwed up the launch because what else do they have to back it up? That was must see TV, right? I'm using an NBC phrase here, but you get the idea. And the answer was not a whole lot. Well, they obviously heard that. And obviously some of that was impacted by, the, you know, uh, TV shows moving around from platform to platform as they figured out what this brand was and what the Hulu brand was. But that's not going to be a problem much longer. They, You know, when they look at all of this, this stuff, you know, you're looking at just on on take Marvel and Star Wars by themselves, that's 20 shows. And if they want to have a new show every week, every week, I mean, I'm looking at the at the Marvel rundown and it's WandaVision in January, Falcon and Winter Soldier and the Snowman in March, Loki in May, What If, the animated show in the summer, and then you get in uh, Hawkeye in late 2021, Miss Marvel in 2022, She-Hulk around the corner, Moon Knight after that, and then you announced five other shows, one of them short form and one of them a holiday special. So you got Secret Invasion with Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Mendelsohn, Ironheart, Armor Wars with Don Cheadle. And then, then at some point in 2023, the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, which, oh my God, that sounds fun. And then the I Am Groot short form show. And then you get into all the Star Wars stuff. You've got two spinoffs already of The Mandalorian. You've got Hayden Christensen returning for um uh for, for the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. You've got the Orlando Cla- Calrissian limited series. Like if you love Star Wars and if you love Marvel, you should have already given your money to Disney+. Plus. And then beyond that, you're looking at the fact that this is the home of amazing library content, right? So The Simpsons is the backbone of, of this platform. You've got, other, you know, a ton of other stuff from across the Disney fold, but then you get into all of the Disney originals and they announced some super fun stuff, a Beauty and the Beast live action prequel, which we, we wrote about and talked about in March. Then you've, you've got spinoffs of, of a lot of these other movies with big fan bases, the Mighty Ducks. The trailer for that looked so fun. Turner and Hooch, which, you know, whatever, but Big Shot, you know, the the David E. Kelly uh, basketball dramedy where John Stamos is basically like, you know, some arrogant coach who comes to a a girls high school. And, you know, it's just there's so much stuff. And then you get into some of these like uh, some of these other IPs. They're doing Swiss Family Robinson, a TV series with Ron Moore from Battlestar Galactica and Outlander and John Chu from Crazy Rich Asians attached a Percy Jackson and the Olympians show like. And then you get into some of the the features that are being made specifically for the streamer, a Hocus Pocus sequel, Three Men and a Baby with Zac Efron, like a cheaper by the dozen movie from Kenya Barris, like Ice Age spin. Like there's so much stuff. Dan, there is so much stuff. And- I'm just
2: sitting back and letting you go because at some point your head is going to explode and it might be funny to watch.
1: No, please don't. Um, <laughs> and then you get into the animation stuff, you know, like I look everyone. Anyone who knows me knows I'm like a super Disney nerd. I, I love Disneyland. I got engaged at Disneyland. It is a very important place to me. I've grown up going there. Season passes the whole nine yards. And then you get into the fact that that, you know, their animation side, they're leaning in, you know, they have a Monsters, Inc. show that's that's coming around the corner. They've got the Baymax series coming. They announced um, a Zootopia series of animated shorts, a long form musical uh, musical comedy series called Tiana and then a Moana show. There's a Moana show, Dan. Where do I sign? And then you've got new, there's so much stuff. And the the other piece of this too is while they still are going to have, obviously, this huge theatrical presence, they remain committed to the theatrical experience. Black Widow is not coming to Disney Plus before it's in theaters. That's just too big of a revenue hit. But the interesting thing about all of this, Dan, is eventually it's going to wind up there. So if you miss it in theaters or you miss it on whatever linear cable network or broadcast network it's on or wherever it is in the Disney ecosystem... All roads lead back to Disney Plus, or Hulu, or ESPN Plus, with you know depending on what your taste is. And they announced a big, a big college football deal too, right? The SEC. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like a
3: big deal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, the SEC indeed, and yes, it's a big deal. Uh, no, and you and you haven't even mentioned the things that actually get me excited about any of these uh, brands. You know, the so for example. The Lando Carl Risian limited series, which they did not in any way say Donald Glover's name, so it's unclear mm-hmm. if he's going to have any involvement at all, and either he will or he won't. But it's from Dear White People creator uh, Justin Simeon. That right there, much more than any of the brand, gets me excited. Uh, You didn't mention that the Mighty Ducks TV show stars uh, Riley from Letterkenny. I couldn't care less about this Mighty Ducks TV series. But as soon as I saw Riley from Letterkenny, I was like, oh, okay, I'm totally going to watch one episode of that. Dan, I'm reading from our Slack
1: right now, and I believe it was you, not me, who wrote Quack, Quack, Quack. So don't tell me you're not excited. okay?
2: I think I was pandering to you with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it was even in all caps with an exclamation point or two. I was pandering and I'm fine with pandering. Always happy to pander. Uh, Then, you know, of course, the the John Stamos uh, coaches high school basketball girls uh, series, which is basically the closest we're going to get to John Stamos starring in a Rick Pitino biopic, which totally is something that should happen, which comes from uh, David E. Kelly. So, you know, like there's a lot of interesting stuff kind of below the line on a lot of these things. You know, the above the line is, oh, my goodness, if you are a piece of Disney IP from any point in the Disney history and you haven't gotten your own standalone miniseries or TV show, boy, something must have gone very wrong at some point. Uh But th- yeah, there are a lot of I mean, interesting- they're only a year
1: into the service. So give them time, Dan. I'm sure they'll get there. I, I mean, they already ruined Lady and the Tramp for me, so <laughs> it's my my, my all time favorite Disney movie. and That live action thing was absurd. But there's a ton of more stuff coming. And look, this is only really you're getting into year two, three and four. And, you know, this and we're only talking about Disney Plus right now. You know, we can shift for a second and talk about some of the other Disney brands, which, you know, again, you want to talk about scale, Hulu, FX on Hulu Nat Geo at Disney Plus, you, you know, they announced Genius, the, the scripted anthology that's won a, a boatload of Emmys is moving to Disney Plus and it's going to tackle uh, Martin Luther King in, in its next season. Um, and then, you you know, with, with Hulu, the, the, one of the most interesting pieces of, of news that came out of today was like announced as like, a, like an afterthought from by Dana Walden. The Kardashians are coming to Hulu. They left E. E tried to keep them. They desperately wanted to keep them. They wanted to have them create new content for Peacock. And where did they go? They went to Disney, a multiple year deal, and they will have a new show streaming on Hulu in late 2021. The Kardashians, it's like the biggest family in in, in reality TV, and they're at Disney. Like, do all roads lead to Disney? They've got Marvel, Star Wars, the Kardashians. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy to me, Dan. Like, and then you can get, you know, like, there's just... They are the biggest brand in the world. Like, and I know that, you know, that may not be true, but that from my vantage point, it's like that ecosystem continues to be big. There's a reason why people want to go to Disney. And the, the crazy part of, of all of this, too, if you're if you follow the film industry and, and what's going on with Warner Media and their day and date announcement that that f- films would go in theaters and on the the on HBO Max. Patty Jenkins, Wonder Woman, right? The big experiment, the very first show, that, the very first movie that they announced as, as, as part of this big streaming experiment. She's going to direct the next Star Wars. She's going to Disney too.
2: And if people haven't gone to Patty Jenkins's Twitter feed and seen the little video that she made explaining her personal tie to the Star Wars movie that she's getting to do, you really should because it's, it is such a great pure, simple, one minute proof of concept. Like you, you, if you started it with any skepticism, though, why anyone would after Wonder Woman, that's something else. But if you did, there is no way you can get to the end of that one minute, single shot proof of concept confession explaining her personal tie to this. If you don't want to see her movie immediately, there's something wrong with you. So, yeah, that was that was one of many big. I mean, seriously, the the sheer number of once they got to the Star Wars Disney animation slash Pixar Marvel portion, which came like an hour and a half or two hours into this four hour presentation, uh, yeah, it was it was really sort of like beating you over and over again with the sack of oranges, uh, so that it wouldn't leave a mark. Uh, but it was. Yeah, that, that was an exhausting presentation. And frankly, I'm just always happy with their continuing to be content because it keeps us employed. Uh, There was a lot of really good stuff, I thought, from the Star Wars side of things. The behind the scenes footage they showed of the technology that they've been using to basically create these virtual worlds that they've been doing and how those technologies are particularly COVID friendly. So it was almost like their way of saying, even if things, you know, even if the vaccine doesn't make everything better, even if the world continues to be vaguely pear-shaped, we're going to be okay. And I guess that's reassuring if anyone out there was seriously worried about Disney's long-term future.
1: I mean, I think, remember, this was Disney Investor Day, this was a presentation not for super fans of of film and TV, but for Wall Street. And we should note that, you know, Disney stock hit a high within, I think, the first 10 minutes of the presentation when they announced 10 new projects each from Marvel and Star Wars. After hours, I think it was up something like 4% the last time I looked. And, you know, and we're, you know, the other pieces, Dan, FX, they had some John Landgraf, you know, came out and, and, you know, did a little uh, announcement and dropped a couple of bombshells, too. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, got a four-season renewal and is now officially TV's longest running live-action scripted comedy in the U.S. It bested a record previously held by Ozzy and Harriet, and it didn't just break it. It went well beyond that. And then there was, you know, as again, as almost an afterthought, news that they're developing an alien TV series from Noah Hawley of Fargo and Legion, and then they're working with the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones, one of the biggest bands in the world, about for a two season uh, scripted series looking at the band's formation from the early sixties to the nineteen seventies with with Nick Hornby,
2: I will watch these things. I, I will watch, watch
1: these things too.
2: I will watch all of these things. Uh, I mean, professionally speaking, of course I will. But uh, yeah, no, there there was there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff, and there and you know some of the stuff was previously announced. I feel like most of the Disney animation stuff was previously announced, and that's kind of the That's just the nature of the animation beast is that some of these things have been in production for so long that, you know, animation heads knew them. And then there's all the the stuff like... That, for example, this was the first time that Tatiana Maslany was officially announced. Oh, that's as just ridiculous. She-Hulk, which is, which is that's just like hilarious. It's de- like
1: a Marvel thing, you know. This stuff leaks, <laughs> and then they they decline, and then months and months and months later, they're like, "And guess what? We can officially announce." You know, like it's just a Marvel it, thing. It,
2: it annoys that's, me because because Tatiana everyone. Maslany has done multiple interviews where she specifically lied about that. I don't like any company that makes their employees lie to reporters about jobs that they have. That, that to me is pretty scuzzy. And I mean, I believe as of last week, Haley Steinfeld hadn't officially been announced for the Hawkeye series. Despite the fact that she was being photographed in costume on the set <laughs> of the show and she still was unofficially only a part of the show. So I mean, it's...
1: look, Mar- Marvel <laughs> likes to make their spectacle, Dan. I'm not going to take it from them as much as it's annoying to press and to talent, I'm sure, who who have to come up with creative responses to thirsty uh, members of the press corps looking for more information yeah, it's just, you know, it's just what they do. I mean, look, at least we can actually say that the Marvel stuff between the film stuff and the Disney Fair stuff, the Disney Plus uh, material, it really is all connected now. You know, uh, Kevin Feige came out and spent a lot of time talking about how the TV shows and the Marvel Cinematic Universe would be directly connected. And you've got, again, as we've already seen with with uh, all of the shows that they've already announced, Marvel, you know, Loki and all these other ones they have these, the same talent and they're going to launch new new shows on, on the platform that feed directly in. And this is honestly like, why didn't the company do this like a decade ago? Like, imagine how much even bigger some of these Marvel shows could have been on ABC if they really were directly connected versus whatever the hell Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was.
2: I don't think they had anyone who was available and willing to pour the money into it. I think it's just as simple as, as that. And also, it, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., When it premiered, it premiered on a network that had only the ability to look at it as how do we get 15 to 22 episodes out of this? That was the only way they knew how to view the world. And so there was never going to be a way that in 15 to 22 episodes per season, they were going to be able to do a Marvel movie quality TV show on TV. They couldn't. And even something like Agent Carter, which was really good. And that that show would have
1: gone on to like 10 seasons on Disney Plus.
2: For sure. Uh, And and even that show, which, you know, it didn't have it like it obviously wasn't cheap because it was a period show. But yeah, so, you know, it's it's a different paradigm. This happens to be the right paradigm. The fact that they can say six episodes and we're going to pour a ridiculous amount of money into it because we see the value is different from saying 22 episodes. We're going to pour that amount of money. There's just there was just no way they could have done it. This was the right time. And yeah, lots and lots of content. And guess what? This is probably the shortest segment of this podcast. So, <laughs> <sighs> good times. Number 2. Up next, it is truly the end of the road for One Day at a Time as Sony's efforts to find the beloved comedy a third home, fourth if you include the fact that episodes aired on a uh, CBS A couple months ago, uh, have come to an end two weeks after Viacom CBS passed on a fifth season of the show from showrunners Mike Royce and Gloria Calderon Kellett.
1: You know, the series, as I've said on the show multiple times, really did feel like it was a victim of peak TV. It had a hard time cutting through on Netflix, which canceled the series after its third season before Viacom's pop TV miraculously jumped in to rescue the show for a fourth season. Then the pandemic hit and production was shut down after only six of its 13 episodes were completed. Producers wrapped the season with an, a really timely animated special. And in the interim, in the months since then, Viacom CBS has shifted gears and pulled the plug on originals at Pop TV, meaning there was no way that One Day at a Time would get renewed on that linear network. Repeats of the series didn't exactly catch on at CBS, which had been a home for similar multi-camera comedies like Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men. And yeah, they, they tried finding it a home. I heard that there were talks at least... Kicking the Tires at IMDb TV, which is backed by Amazon, and Spectrum Originals, where producers Sony have a lot of business.
2: So joining us this week, really just to say farewell and to talk a little bit about a show that we really appreciated, are two of our favorite guests joining us for, I believe, the fourth time is Mike Royce. And for the second time, Gloria Calderon-Kellett. Welcome to the podcast, guys.
1: Thank you for having us.
4: It's a pleasure to be here together.
1: <laughs> so, as we record this, the news broke last night, yesterday afternoon. Um, how are you both feeling right now? Minute to minute, it changes.
4: Yep, I didn't think I was going to cry there, but there I go. I'm crying again. Yeah. You know, it's like a very unstable. There's a big text chain going on amongst the actors. All it's all very.
0: It's beautiful. People are telling
4: stories. Yeah, very beautiful. It's all
0: very beautiful. It's a. It's we're we're in the beautiful postmortem of of a of a beautiful thing that we're all so proud we got to make. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very loving, um, there's no bitterness here. It's all, we're sitting in the love big time.
2: Well, the first time when the show was canceled, when Netflix pulled the plug, you guys both consistently and persistently sort of kept hope alive, kept kind of drumming up support, kept saying, if people do dot, 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 maybe something will happen. Why was Tuesday the time in your minds to sort of say, "Okay, you know, we've tried, but this this experience is coming to an end?
0: Well, Sony had really Sony's been an incredible partner on this journey. They've been very tenacious in terms of trying to find creative ways to continue to make the show. And this was a time where you know, because of the pandemic, because of the amount of shows being made is smaller, because I mean, we we had successfully done the thing. We found a new home that was very happy to have us. And then the business model changed at that at that network. Uh, so it was it was interesting to even see cancellation because we weren't so much canceled as they're not making <laughs> and TV shows anymore in the same way. Right. Like it's so we're just a byproduct of of that. And and we went back to a couple of places that, that had some interest in us. And I think just given the time of, of what we're dealing with as a country, I think it just made it difficult for them to say yes. We still don't know why. I'll always be sort of blown away. Uh, I think people think it's very easy to do a show like this. I think they don't understand the unique alchemy that has to happen between actors and creators in order for there to be uh, this level of of love and and specialness that we certainly felt with this cast and with this group of writers and with this crew. And I think that, uh, I think many places, uh, had it been called something else, would have been all about it. But there's a history now and there's baggage and there's, you know, so I, I think it made it more difficult for them to say yes, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that I've been hearing over the last few weeks or few months, I should say, in in reporting on what's going on with your show, obviously, the, the network you said and the business model that changed was POP, which is what's happening with a lot of linear uh, cable networks as all of these big conglomerates shift all of their resources and, and executives into streaming. But one of the things that I had heard is that there was interest at CBS All Access, which is within, you know, like POP in the Viacom CBS fold. What How far did the talks go there? And was that, you know, the the Netflix deal where it prohibited another streamer from airing it until 2022, prohibitive of it landing somewhere else, especially all access?
4: There there seemed to be momentary interest. And then it sort of went away for reasons that we still don't quite understand. That was back. That was a few months ago. And then, um, you know, recently Netflix was nice enough to. Uh, remove their, you know, it would have been removed in a year or so. And they gave us the go ahead to, to shop to other streaming outlets. Um, one time for Norman, as a favor to Norman, Lear and Gloria. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, it was a thing that was going to expire anyway, fairly soon. Um, so this time around, it just for some reason, you know, I mean, when you say, why did we decide this time to sort of that this was the end. It's because it's the end, <laughs> you know, like we're, we're, we we're, were hoping that we could make it happen, but, um, just for whatever reason, nobody, um, you know, including CBSL access, um, were a taker this time.
1: Yeah. And I'd heard that, you know, Amazon's, um, IMDB TV and spectrum originals where Sony has a lot of deals were among those to kick the tires this time. But I'm curious about the calls that you guys got, presumably from from Sony saying we ran out of options. What was that like? And what did they tell you?
0: They just said they, you know, they really had, had shaken all the trees and there were no more coconuts. I mean, that was really, you know, I think it, 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 I don't know why that came into being. I don't know why. I think I was playing Animal Crossing with my child. And so
4: that, I just I just want to back if they had actually just said that on the phone call. Hey guys, we shook the tree. No more coconuts. So anyway, bye. <laughs> I would have given them points yeah. a little bit for like, I mean, oh, it that feels,
0: was. it feels on Cuban trend to say the coconut tree analogy. Um, no, look, I, they, they have, uh, we've said this many times, but Sony has been uh, a really vital partner in this. There's, there are many shows that are canceled and Mike has told stories about you go to the studio and you're like, please, please. And this was a place where the studio came to us and said, don't worry, we're on it. And they meant it. And they really did try many times. So when they came to us and said, guys, this is the end, it was we knew that we knew that meant that they had done everything that they could do. And uh, and we'd already all made various forms of peace because we've had to mourn this show so many times that that we were all, I think, uh, I think we were all fatigued as well. And we all didn't want to, uh, keep the fans on this roller coaster. It was like, okay, we'll, we'll, we got to make 46 episodes that we're so proud of and that's not nothing. So.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, obviously you guys have been through so much, you know, I I think I've talked to to you about this both separately, but now that I have you both, that now that Dan and I have you both together, this show really does feel like a poster child for peak TV, you know, amazing reviews, the people who have seen it, love it and are vocal about it. S- trouble catching on. You kind of had to kind of scrape to get these renewals at, at Netflix, which, you know, in a in a rare move for them, gave you the time to try and grow. And then, of, of course, after after season three, a, you know, a groundbreaking deal to move it to pop and then production shut down because of the, the pandemic. And then you do this animated episode. I mean, how much do you guys feel like you guys are a victim of the times that we're in?
0: It's all relative, right? Like, I don't feel like a victim at all. I feel like uh, this is a pleasure and a privilege to be able to uh, work and make TV. I mean, there are heavy things happening in the world, so not for one minute are you going to hear a complaint um, from me. I I will never understand. My parents came here with a suitcase not knowing the language. You're not going to hear me uh, bitching about my TV show. The thing, however that is frustrating to me is that all of it is in terms of the context of how it is publicized to its audience, right? Like so much of it is about what is the narrative surrounding a show? The narrative about one day at a time is every single year our audience grew. At the end, millions of people watched us. So for for it to somehow be like, oh, well, it was just a show that didn't catch on is not true. The truth is millions of people watched the show. Now, maybe that wasn't enough for certain streamers. That's OK. Maybe it wasn't enough for certain business models. But like we were the number one scripted show when CBS aired us. We were the number one amongst Hispanic viewers. Like that is meaningful. So I, I have to take every win as the win that it was. Um, I, I think that it's unfortunate that um, that, you know, we didn't have the PR that I always hoped that we would get. Uh, but that can be said with so many shows catching fire right now is difficult, but every part of this journey was a privilege. We got to make exactly what we wanted to make because Netflix at first allowed it when other places were not, um, you know, servicing, uh, Latino stories. And so we're so grateful to Netflix forever. And then we were so grateful to pop that we, that we got to make seven more. It was, it was joyous. And certainly the landscape from when we started making this show to now, there are so many more Latino shows on TV. And that is something that is thrilling to me. That means that what we did uh, did not just work for us, but it made other people see, I think, the value of this this very vibrant community that is still very deeply underserved.
4: I, 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 well, I'm a straight white male, so I have a lot of complaints.
3: (laughs) This business
4: owes me big no. I everything Gloria said is absolutely true. And I I would just say that it's yeah, you know, it's it's we're so proud of everything that we did. And that far outshines what we're we're not allowed to do. You know, I mean, like you have to end at a certain point. And um, if you have your druthers, it's certainly like, well, I'd rather end with everybody loving us than like trying to, you know. I don't think we ever would have done this, but, you know, having some, oh my God, they've been out of gas for three seasons. What are they even doing over there? Kind of a situation, you know? Um, I've never gotten to to try to figure that out, but, you know, it might be nice to like figure out when that situation is. I experienced it on Everybody Loves Raymond when Phil and Ray went out at what I consider the perfect time. Um, And that's, you know, then I later found out how rare that is to have the ability to do that. But I would just say that like, you know, now, especially on broadcast. A lot of shows get, I mean, I guess they're just in a turmoil over there, really. I don't know what they, I'm saying sincerely, I don't know if they know what, what the future is, certainly in terms of scripted comedy, because everything gets the same rating. And so you have to choose, we're just, you know, there's more of a choice of what we're putting on as opposed to, well, this obviously we have to keep on because this is a hit and this is a, the, the difference between a hit and a show you cancel is the same friggin' number right Same because
1: it, you know that's why these things like international deals <clears throat> and streaming deals are are such a huge piece of this but now that all of these conglomerates have their own streamer does it really you know how how do you like how do you gauge i mean the fact that that the head of hulu is now overseeing ABC, on top of that, it just shows you that, well, ABC is just a stepping stone until you get to Hulu. Like, that's how, you know, like NBC doesn't even have its own dedicated exec anymore. It's part of like a content group under Susan Rovner. I'm exhausting myself talking about all this executive (laughs) stuff. But I I feel you I feel what you're saying in in a big way. and, And as someone who covers this industry, you're absolutely right. So how does that, I think, approach you know, when you guys get shut down by the pandemic and, and you realize that this may be the end when you made that animated special, did you did you have an awareness of that is probably going to be the bookender? Like knowing the state of, of these li- linear networks and cable networks, especially, did you know when you made the one- animated one day at a time that that might be the end of the of the show? I think every season we made anything. <laughs>
0: Right. Like, I mean, honestly, yeah. every season we would end it like, well, if this is the end. Then we got to do this quinceñera episode. Well, if this is the end, we got to do this episode where everyone gave a monologue to, to Lydia and we had this big view. Well, if this is the end, then Penelope got to go to school. Like every season we were not sure we would write it so that if it was the end, then then it was the end. We were fortunate that uh, the last live action episode that we shot ended up being kind of a lovely uh, wrap-up for the romantic storylines. We were going to be entering, you know, our back half of the season, which was far more emotional. Um, but, the, but the front half, we, we got to end with that Supermoon episode, which, which is a nice wrap-up for the series. And then the political episode was just something that we just wanted to keep the lights on, and it was one that Mike and I very, were very passionate about trying to get out before the election. So uh, we're, we're thrilled that we got to do that as kind of a special episode.
2: I mean, I re I rewatched the Supermoon episode last night and and it does feel like, you know, if if that's how you ended it, that's how you ended it. They're up on the roof. They're hugging. They're talking about life going on and everybody has somebody. And that's, you know, as heartfelt as it could get. But at the end, she
4: says we're done.
0: Yeah. I
2: mean, I'm just saying the last
0: words were (laughs) we're done. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But but in your mind, there were other scripts you had for season four. And presumably in your mind, you had, you know, a hypothetical imaginary place you wanted to take the show anyway. Where did you imagine ending the show? And are you at least kind of satisfied with the supermoon? And as you say, you know, it's over being
4: where things rest. Well, in terms of ending the, the, the show itself, not just the season you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about, you know, Whenever um, um, uh, Alex went to college, maybe kind of a situation, you know, um, is a good point to end, to to aim for. Um, You know, we we talked about six seasons, I think, as a ideally
0: Ideally, it would have been six seasons. And the last episode is Alex goes off to college and we have Rita and Justina sitting on the couch together, putting their feet up and cheersing with some rum. You know, like that would have been the ideal ending. We got these kids out into the world. That's we did it.
2: Yeah. And had you had episodes or topics or dramatic structures, et cetera, that you'd kind of had as back pocket? OK, we'll get to that in season five. We'll get to that in season six. Things that you just didn't get to do that you always knew you wanted to.
0: Tons. We had so much stuff. <laughs>
2: Like what kind of stuff, Gloria? (laughs) So
0: much stuff. We really wanted to do something with Cynthia. We talked about it this season. We didn't get it in this season. Who's our trans uh, veteran. We wanted to do something about trans uh, veterans and and trans rights. Uh, We wanted, we had another beautiful episode written by Sebastian Jones. uh, Another religion episode where we had Wilson Cruz was going to play a sexy priest uh, that, uh, that was a good guy. Uh, that was a good guy that, that was, uh, understanding when Lydia was upset that this church that she loves so much would not allow her granddaughter to get married within it. That one day, uh, that wouldn't be able to happen. So she has a real crisis of, of faith that she goes to a priest and talks about. Uh, we had more episodes about anxiety and, and, and depression. We had more episodes about uh, it's so many. We had so many. I mean, there were there were hours. Mike, yeah. Mike records us. I mean, one day we'll have to do a thing like 50 years after our death. All those recordings can go out. Is that <laughs> Mark Twain had but something like, like that? This,
4: yeah, I don't think it's anything controversial. It would just take take people that long to actually listen to all of them.
0: No, but I think the idea is nobody that we're talking about is alive. That's the point.
4: Well, I see. <laughs> that's the goal that's the saying.
0: goal yeah so that anyone right. can enjoy you know but yeah
4: i'm realizing this is a show this is a dream i didn't know you had this is yeah. the new we're breaking new yeah. news between us you have hours right of
0: us being delightful together mike royce somebody's gonna want to well, hear that one day they're gonna be very bored <laughs>
4: so this yeah, is so the this one, one day at a time
0: tapes yeah, coming, guys, coming soon to if THR. you guys HR. want more <laughs>
4: Oh, just imagine how you and I are going to be the only ones listening yeah, to that. Yeah, we'll be the only ones laughing at each other's Oh, when I said that. <laughs> talk,
2: talk a bit about the alchemy. Between the two of you guys, because it is obvious listening to you guys go back and forth that this is that this is a good creative relationship. And I assume you guys have both been in situations where it hasn't been as as perfect. When did you know that you had someone who you could go back and forth the way you wanted to in this project? You're going to make me cry, Daniel. You're going to make me cry. (laughs) This is my this is my goal, Gloria. So far, no tears. I want
4: tears. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the story that you know it's not really it, 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 it was the first time we we met we the first time we met, I recorded it, and uh, <laughs> I actually put a little of it on the internet recently on on Twitter. I mean, um and uh, it was, you know it it was a, a, a real wonderful revelation because you don't know what exactly at this in this case, we didn't exactly know what we were getting into. We didn't know what Norman wanted out of the show and we didn't know what each other wanted out of the show. It was just an amazing opportunity, but you know, let's see what happens. Um, and it was also doing a sitcom for me for, for the first time in 10 years doing a sitcom with laughs. So I felt both like, well, I'm an old veteran at that stuff, but I also don't know. It's been a long time since I knew what I was doing in that arena. And, um, there was a big high bar, so I was nervous, but we started talking, we had a nice meeting with Norman, then we went to a cafe, and we just started talking, like, everything she said, I was like, oh, that's, I, we just were really vibing, and, and you know, that coupled with reading, for myself, reading her material, where I was like, oh, she writes the kind of stuff that I love, you know? Um, so it was right away, right away. It was right away. It was, it was, it was
0: it's happening again, it's terrible. <laughs> Oh no! (laughs) Usually,
4: it's this is good. It's usually me. I gotta say, it's usually Mike. It's usually Mike. Really enjoying this. No,
0: it was really. I mean, I I had this point where I was trying to figure out like, where do I fit in this in Hollywood? Like, where do I fit? Does anyone care what I have to say? Um, Am I ever going to be able to do something that really means a lot to me? And to have been so blessed with Norman and with Mike, who were two people that saw in me what I had forgotten in that moment and who not only saw it, but really celebrated it. I remember just, I remember making Mike laugh and feeling like, oh my God, I can't believe he thinks I'm funny. You know, like this, this person who has done all these amazing things and it just, I felt like during the time I got to make that show I really felt my power within it and all this pride and love I have for my community was something that was celebrated every day. This love I have for my family, this love I have for so many LGBTQ people that have that stood by me in difficult times. Like it was it was a present to me and a present to them that I got to make it and so I just can't believe I got to do it. I can't believe every day I was on that set. Truly. I was so present and I was so grateful and I felt it. I was like, Oh my God. I mean, I mean, it was a joke on set. I would say all the time, we're making a TV show because I couldn't believe it. Like sometimes I would say it so that it was like a pinch me moment. Like we're making a TV show. We get to do this thing, this thing that this little Cuban American girl in Oregon after school latchkey, would come in and watch reruns of TV shows and say, one day I want that. I want to do that. One day I want to do that. I want the people to look like I do. And then I got to do it. Like how many people get to do that? And so we got to do it for 46 episodes and everybody involved in the show is beautiful and wonderful. And we all felt that all the time. So it was the greatest gift of my life. And so for me to be able to continue to do it, because I feel so in my power now, I feel so validated that it allows me to continue. And it also allows me to, I can't wait till I'm somebody's Mike Royce.
1: That was, that was really beautiful. Both of you guys, um, you know, and you also really just described why TV is so important to so many people The be the power that comes with seeing yourself on screen is so vital. I, I mean, I remember when I came out and and the first time that I saw Ellen say, yes, I'm gay on her show and how big of a deal that was for me. So my heart goes out to you. I know this was an an amazing experience for, for both of you and for a lot of your fans and viewers, you know, and the ability for you guys to work together and to continue to work together. You know, you, you still have seven unproduced scripts that would have been the second half of season four. Six. Do you have... So six. Okay. Sorry. Six episodes. So do you have any plans for that? Maybe, you know, a virtual (laughs) read, you know, virtual table reads have become a big deal, you know, during this pandemic. Is that something that you're thinking about doing? Maybe getting the cast together to do these last table reads and maybe with a charitable component to them or, you know, is is, anything that gets the the band back together, as they say?
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've talked about it. Mike, Mike had that idea. i I think there's like part of us that's so sad that the getting together would, I don't know, might be too hard for our hearts in this moment. Maybe eventually I think that.
4: Yeah, we got to, we got to take a, take a beat.
0: We got to take a beat. We got to take a beat and think about it. Um, Cause we, I mean, the, I mean, the text chains are real. Like my phone is buzzing. Uh, you know, we are on a family uh, ODAT family text chain. We're one, one with the writers and one with the actors, um, and both
1: of them are pretty exquisite. Never say never. Never say never.
3: Yeah. I'll yeah. take that.
1: Never say never. Um, and I think you, there's a lot of people that want to that know what was in those scripts, you know, and especially af- after hearing some of the, the, the topics that you wanted to, to address and that hopefully were in the back half of that season. But, you know, when you look back now, you have a complete library of this show. What do you hope? that fans and viewers take away of the show, people who have both watched it and those who will find it in the future?
4: You know, I think we it's very odd, but somehow appropriate that we literally came on at the basically the moment Trump became president and we're ending at basically the moment that he's leaving. And only, only to say that America was a not, you know, there's a lot of not great stuff well, throughout America's history, but let's just say this. Let's focus on this four years, um, and we rarely wrote our show to be a response to some Trump thing. There were occasional things that were so societal that, like, of course, you know. But our our show, uh, you know, I think. Uh, uh, <laughs> Sorry, Gloria said all my shit because I she made me what I mean I everything she said I'm like it's the same I feel the same way she she enabled me to be I mean there's you know I could never have produced any kind of that you know creatively like she just made me grow and and like I I delight every time she likes something it's a huge validation and Anyway, I, I can't articulate myself the way that she did, um, <laughs> which is part of the magic of the relationship. Um, but I think that the our show always tried to be have kindness and love and warmth, warmth really being the operative term, you know, to just have some place. that's not an escape. It wasn't like, oh, this is some fantasy world that like it was very real. We dealt with a lot of real shit, but it was a good, you know, in some ways, wish fulfillment that should be, this is the way life should be that, and it can be, you know, these relationships and how you deal with the change, the changes in society. And, you know, uh, my daughter came out as the, as we were writing the first season and, uh, it was so good to sort of go back and forth and watch her life develop and watch the watch Elena develop, uh, you know, and kind of use some of her life with Elena and, uh, the same thing with Alex and, and my son a little bit, um, to, to have like, a, a, a I don't know, like a family that you could really look up to that didn't, didn't, wasn't fluffy and, and, and out of the loop. They were very much in dealing with real things that were happening. And, uh, and always being a, a, a just a nice, loving place to go.
2: Who had the funniest response when you talked to them on Tuesday? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go down to the who had the saddest response because I don't <laughs> want to make you cry again. Who had the funniest response to the news?
0: I think Rita.
4: Kind of Rita, only because she was so bubbly and cheerful when she answered the phone.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Like I'm doing and, great. Yes. How are you guys? And we're like, oh well, <laughs> we got some bad news. Uh, don't want to. She
4: was, of course, disappointed, but she, she's still Rita Moreno, where she's, you know,
0: she's lived said, through a nice. lot, guys. She's lived through a lot. Read yeah. her book. This was, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. She's lived through a lot. This was a blip on the <laughs> disappointment meter for <laughs> Rita. Now it was mostly. I mean, look. Here's the good news: is that we all tell each other how we feel about each other all the time (laughs) we love up on each other all the time so each of these calls didn't have to be very long because we always talk about how much we're on panels we're on we're out in the world talking about what a joy it is that we get to do this with each other and how beautiful that we got to do it for five years we say it all the time so it it, we didn't have to have a big hey thank you so much we've said it all we've said it all
1: yeah that's right that's right you know, uh, you know, wrap it up here, Gloria, I know you You uh, have a great overall deal now um, at Amazon. Uh, what's next for you? And any odds of any chances of you and Mike reteaming on something there?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll, we're very codependent. So we will definitely do something. I don't know what, but we'll do something. Don't worry, world. Um, I have... <laughs> I have a, a <laughs> an exciting slate of stuff that I can't talk about. I, um, some things that I'm supervising, which were really thrilling. Uh, but several, you know, Amazon is giving me many bites at the apple. So it's, it's really bit, I'm only six months into the deal. So it's still very new. I'm still navigating, you know, what's the best thing to, to follow. I want to, I want the next thing to be very different than one day at a time. Um, And, uh, for me, it's also making stuff, which is, which was very true with this was filling, uh, filling all the places in, in the 13 year old Gloria mind that where we didn't exist, you know? So like, for me, it's very much about like, I love sitcoms. My family wasn't in a sitcom. We're going to make my family a sitcom. I'm in. And so the same is true with everything. Like I want the sci-fi show. I want the genre show. I want, the, I want all of the shows to exist, but now with Latinos. So if I can be the person that does that, that Norman leers it up in that way, that would be thrilling to me. Um, but I will not be doing a multicam for, for a while. I won't be doing any, I don't believe, while I'm at Amazon. So it'll be, it'll be nice to just jump into something else because I think anything would have been, uh, anything in that space would have felt so much like that. And I think I need to let that just breathe and exist and and try to make some new stuff that's that's different that also
1: has Latinos on the poster. And Mike, what about you? What's next for you? Um, I know men of a certain age is getting some traction on uh, HBO Max these days. Any any odds of a reboot there?
4: Yes. Whoever's listening to this, I would, you know, please come to Ray and I with the old man (laughs) show. I mean, we should come to you, but we're we're available. Well, I don't know about Ray. I'm I'm available. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm available. Um, of course, we'd always l- love to do uh, a catch up with those guys and do like it. I think it's the perfect thing to do it. You know, it's now 10 years, whatever, later. But uh, it's literally about age, the show. So you can't get too old for it. Um, but that that's always been a little bit of a fantasy of mine to to revisit that. But Gory and I, yes, are trying to find a way. I, I am on a deal at Sony um, uh, as well, uh, which is obviously a different place than Amazon. So we're trying to figure out. The space I have a couple of... I'm looking at my board over here. I have a bunch of things. I have a pilot at Adult Swim that is the closest to being a thing, and I hope to find out about in a couple months. Hopefully, it will be a series uh, with a guy named Alex Klein, who's a very uh, talented uh, artist and writer. And, um, and uh, otherwise, I, you know, I, I'm trying to make sure that I'm always... I don't want to use the phrase lift up because it sounds like I'm like on some mountain where I'm, you know, but, but that I'm aware of my privilege in that sense, you know, that I'm not just doing a bunch of whitey white men things. Um, and, and, you know, but I, I, I have a, a, taking responsibility seriously to, um, increase representation, not only in front of, on, on, screen, but behind the screen, you know, and writing and everything else. So that, is takes a, a, multiple forms and, but I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I just won't do a project again, where there's not something that's, you know, where it's not completely aware of all, all of those needs. You know, the, the world is still pretty white on screen
1: yeah well
4: and behind the screen. Excuse me.
1: Well, I, I want to thank you both, um, for joining us this week, I know it's been an emotional one and but I'm happy to see that there is still a lot of laughter between the, the two of you. And obviously between the cast, it sounds like, you know, you have two pretty amazing support groups going that uh, show no signs of slowing. True.
2: Thanks so much, guys. Thank
1: you, Thank you guys. You. Thank you
2: for this.
5: Number three.
1: Up next this week. The blowback from Warner Media's decision to release its entire 2021 theatrical slate, day and date on HBO Max and in theaters, has begun.
2: This week, tenant screenwriter Christopher Nolan, who has a longtime relationship with Warner's, blasted the company's window shattering decision. Uh, it is a juicy quote that begins with some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out they were working for the worst streaming service dun, dun, dun.
1: <laughs> yeah he went on to say that that their decision makes no economic sense, and even the most casual Wall Street investor can see the difference between disruption and dysfunction. It was a big, big story written by uh, THR's editor at large, Kim Masters, who joins us this week to break down how the film industry is responding to this window shattering change. Thanks for joining us, Kim. My pleasure. So Chris Nolan is pissed, but he's not the only filmmaker who's up in arms. You know, as you talk to a lot of these filmmakers and directors and and executives and, and everyone else in town. What's how would you summarize the overall response to this strategy?
3: Uh, I think anger and uh, fear, anger and fear. Uh, You know, these guys at Warner's. I feel like certain things are getting conflated here because there's a this whole dialogue about this is the future and get over your Luddite ways and you're going to see that people want it. People want this. And Jason Kyler, the head of Warner Media, his whole talking point over and over again is we're going to win because we're putting the customer first. But this week on my podcast, The Business, little plug for that one there, I have Jason Blum, the producer of many giant pieces of entertainment, The Purge. Uh, you know, uh, Get Out, Black Klansman, all these movies. And he makes a point, I think, that is very good, which is there, there's there's not just the customers out there buying the stuff. There are the sort of customers, which I would use the word partners, creative partners, who make the stuff. And the, as i wrote in our piece in the hollywood reporter you know jason kyler is saying let's put the, the his mantra is customer first but there's another mantra in hollywood which is content is king and what happened here is they blindsided their creative partners. I, I mean, that's the, that's the big picture issue to me that uh, Chris Nolan is partially, uh, and others, you know, the Directors Guild has written a letter to, uh, to Ann Sarnoff, the head of the Warner Brothers Studio, saying like, wait, what are you doing? We need a meeting because we were told in the previous management, uh, a few minutes ago, you were going to be very thoughtful when you put our stuff on the streaming service and you just dumped 17 movies with no negotiation and no warning. So what is up with that? So I say, let's look at the overall approach. And before we get to who, the, the merits of, you know, who's a Luddite or who's, who's holding on to the existence of movie theaters possibly. And, the, and as Christopher Nolan has made a point in subsequent interviews, working people whose residuals may be affected when they unilaterally do stuff like this. So it's not just a bunch of diva movie guys whining. You know, it's not that simple. Long yeah, answer. I, I often Long think of answer, like- the, you guys. I,
1: th- I think of the J.J. Abrams deal, you know, that, that I spent much of last year reporting out where Apple offered him twice the money. I, I heard could be as much as $500 million to sign an overall deal with the tech giant. And he opted to stay for half as much at Warner Brothers because- he had the ability to release the movies theatrically and sell to third-party buyers, which, you know, under the new management, everything is going to be, the studio is going to be a content supplier to HBO and HBO Max, and if you're lucky, third-party suppliers. Delightful. So Yeah, John Chu I mean,
3: gave up a very, very rich deal from Netflix he to make Crazy Rich Asians at Warner's because he wanted theatrical, he wanted the cultural impact of a theatrical release. And he then has In the Heights now being part of this 17 movie drop onto the Mourner's streaming service, HBO Max, day and date as it opens in theaters and, and, uh, you know, blindsided. So a lot of people are saying, you know what, I'd rather go to Netflix because at least they've been transparent. This is the deal and this is what we're paying you. And now there's a lot of people saying to, you know, how can we trust uh, partners who would do something like this?
2: It's the blindsiding part that I find particularly fascinating that everyone is talking about how nobody got a phone call about this. From your reporting, is is it total, like literally did no one get a call about this? And has anyone at Warner Brothers kind of given any comment on how that was the way that went down?
3: Well, I'll tell you how it was, Dan. I heard about this the night before it was announced. I reached out to Warner Brothers and and the parent company, Warner Media, and got absolutely no answer whatsoever. I reached out to sources of mine who are powerful agents with major, major business at Warner's. And as one of them responded, no way. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, way. <laughs> and and the reason we partly didn't just pull the trigger on the story is because it did sound so extreme that I thought, you know, I have a couple of sources here. I think they're good sources. But Warners wouldn't answer the question at all. So uh, that is not normal conduct in our business. I think Leslie can, will agree that at minimum, if a reporter comes to you with a story, you could say no comment or you could say, hey, you know what? We're going to announce this tomorrow and we'll give you an exclusive window because you're such a good reporter, you found out. But to just do not respond at all it was part yeah. of their thing. Now, let me just say, yeah, you know, ghosting is not a strategy. Ghosting strategy, is actually. their strategy uh, and has continued to be for me. Uh, and, you know, look, I understand that they knew. They it, It's kind of proof that they knew what kind of blowback they would get. And they were afraid. You know, I look back like it's so quaint. They were going to do tower Heist at Universal and sell in a limited market the vi- video copy for 60 bucks. And there was they announced that there was so much blowback. This is years ago, obviously, that they had to drop. So the plan didn't happen. So maybe they were afraid that, you know, that it would just become a tsunami of outrage and they wouldn't be. Able to, they just wanted to go there, but but you know, I think from the optics standpoint, yes, they absolutely didn't tell anybody, and that doesn't look so good.
1: Yeah, and then you've got Disney, which you know, as we record this, you know, this episode, this week's episode is going to be like in chops. We're recording segments after the Disney presentation, and obviously, this is happening before. But from what you're hearing of what's coming with Disney, you know, we're about uh, an hour away from the start of that presentation as we tape this now they're going to be experimenting too with their windowing strategies and what goes in theaters and what goes on Disney+. Plus.
3: Yeah, they're going to experiment, but they are absolutely... I heard Warners was hoping that Disney would sort of go, huh, let's just follow their strategy and this, nail this thing shut. But Disney's not going to do that. Disney had seven movies last year in 2019 that grossed a billion dollars or more at the box office. Seven billion dollar grocers. So... Disney's not going to do it, I am told, very definitively, and I believe it. They'll put some stuff on streaming, and I think you'll see it sort of leans toward kids stuff, you know, Pinocchio and stuff like that, maybe uh, Cruella. But they're not going to take an Avengers movie at this point or something equivalent and put it day and date in on the Disney Plus streaming service. Now, I'll just note, you know, one of the reasons that HBO Max did that in the view of many people in, in uh, the community is that it was a disastrous launch, disastrous. And they had 8.6 million subscribers. Everybody was very confused by the messaging, the name, I have HBO Go, what happens now? It was like a, a complete mess. And so they're stunting for Wall Street in the opinion of many, but at the same time, can you put that genie back in the bottle? Can you say, well, you know what, they're, they're really not being, again, this issue of how much clarity and transparency. I was just listening to Warner Media chief Jason Kyler, the the person who enacted this thing, talking uh, on a podcast and and. The, the hedging around, is this really for a year? Is it really? Well, we'll see, we'll reevaluate. You know, the, there's another fundamental element of I would call dishonesty. They are saying they're doing it for the year because of the pandemic. We had to do it for a year. Theaters are closed. Yes, theaters are closed, but we all know a vaccine is on the horizon. So why, do, if they had done this for three months, said, well, we're going to take this tranche of movies and we're going to just reevaluate and do what Disney has done in the past when it put a couple of movies on the streaming service, went, took them straight to streaming, you know, they did that with Artemis Fowl and uh, some other stuff. You know, you call the people and say, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna have to negotiate this thing because we want to do this and we need to do this. Theaters are closed. Nobody is that, um, you know, unreasonable in Hollywood that they don't understand the pandemic element of it. But you, you, to it's a everybody can kind of smell that when you say it's for a full year because of the pandemic, and then we'll see what Warner's is really thinking."
1: Yeah. And we've talked a lot, you know, on this show this year about the launch of HBO Max and how things have changed and the brand confusion with the name of it and HBO Go and HBO Now and all these things. You know, and obviously, you know, they didn't have the Friends reunion, which they were hoping to have for uh, launch date. But also, would the Friends reunion have been, have been enough in this, you know, in our new world to launch this service or even to, to be a draw and the big, you know, the bigger difference is, as we sit back and kind of take a look at the differences between the two platforms is Disney, don't forget, they did the upcharge where they put, when, once they dropped Mulan on there. So you, you want Mulan? Great. Here Here's this big blockbuster movie, but if there's, it'll cost you on top of your subscription an extra 30 bucks. Well, yeah, and, and I believe, isn't doing I that at they all. I expect they will do math. the
3: same. I expect Disney will do the same with some of the premium offerings in, in, in going forward to see. I don't think Mulan was necessarily the best test case for that strategy. No.
1: Right. But but that's a strategy that Warner Media is not doing, even at fifteen dollars for subscribers.
3: Yeah, I'm told that Warner's doesn't have the technology and I haven't checked that because but that was something one of my sources said is that one of the reasons they're not doing it is because they can't do it. And somehow I find it credible based on the brilliance of that launch. Maybe they actually don't have the capability.
2: And, and I think we're currently at the point where we're starting to hear that the next step is going to involve lawsuits, and that seems inevitable. What are you hearing along those lines? How many there are going to be? How far we are from seeing them? I mean, the question I have at this point is, is this actually going to happen or is it going to be cut off in the courts and just bogged down and it won't happen anyway.
3: Well, we'll see. I mean, the will seems to be there on in several, in, in at least a couple of cases for sure. I'm, and this, this is like, a, as we speak, this is a fluid thing where people are, you know, kind of in the councils of war. Like, what can we, how can we attack and what, what will be effective? But the, you know, the, the poster child in this situation is legendary, which has Godzilla v. Kong and Dune caught up in this, uh, in terms of Godzilla v. Kong, uh, You know, Netflix came along and said, We will offer you, I don't know, two twenty five, two hundred twenty-five million-ish. We will buy the movie. And Legendary was like, which paid by the way for seventy-five percent of that movie, said, sure, we will be we will do that because we are carrying this is it's not free to carry a movie that expensive on your books. And we can't see that we our release date is now in April and we're not so sure about April. So yes, we would like to do that. And Warner said, Nope, we control this thing and you're not doing it. Legendary says, Okay, well, in that case, we will use buy it for HBO Max. So just, you know, give us the money so because we have this Offer and uh, HBO Max. but They didn't really get an answer. There was a lot of dithering. They were already sending a legal letter saying, "Excuse me, hello, we need we need a resolution here." And they wake up in the morning and guess what? Both the Godzilla versus both Godzilla versus Kong and Dune, another a more expensive movie, are caught up in this thing. Like this is how imagine a legendary, by the way, no, they already know what Netflix was offering them. I don't know whether Warners, I, they better be matching that Netflix offer because we have a thing called self-dealing. And we've seen lawsuits about this with things like Bones, the TV series, where you, you know, a company sells the thing to themselves as Warners is doing here with, and you haven't looked around to see what the value is on the open market. And this is one of the points I'm told in this Director's Guild letter, you know, and it's unusual as you guys know for the Director's Guild to, get up on its hind legs. (laughs) But they sent what I'm told is a very strongly worded letter to Warner saying that they had met with Bob Greenblatt and uh, the previous management, Kevin Riley, and were told er, early days of HBO Max, because, you know, as we know, that both of them were shoved out of the company by Jason Kyler. (laughs) But they were told you will, you will get every consideration if these movies are put on this streaming platform that we're building, and you will get a fair market value price. So that was the understanding that the Directors Guild came out of this meeting with. And now they're saying, uh, what's up? What, what are you doing? <laughs> so you're going to see, uh, I think, an effort to punish Warner. I don't know that Hollywood weakened, pandemic-battered Hollywood. You know, not only by the pandemic weakened, but by the digital revolution, can they punish Warners? I think is a big question, but I certainly think the will is there. But we have so limited buyers. You know, we, Fox is gone basically. This Disney bought it. Uh, it uh, you know, there's just not that uh, Sony and Paramount are sort of weakened. They're, the 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 option to Disney is a really specific taste so far about what they do and don't do. So we have a very limited number of buyers. People are going to have to, they will want to find a way to work with Warners, but the question is, will Warners make it, you know, have they already sort of damaged themselves if you're a really big deal creator? Do you sort of think, I don't want to deal with these people?
1: Yeah. And that's, I think, what what uh, Chris Nolan was alluding to in, in in his incredible quote, you know, and and just to kind of close up the segment here, you know, you mentioned all, you know, obviously all the, the self-dealing, which is the center of the big Walking Dead lawsuit that's been going on now and will probably continue to go on for years and years and years. I am curious to hear your thoughts. Do you think that we will hear that we will see more of these lawsuits for self-dealing? I mean, not just, you know, as fallout from dumping the movie slate on on Max, but with all these library deals, right? You know, everyone wants friends, you know, it's a big hit on streaming, obviously, the office. And they're going back to their respective content ecosystems at Warner's and NBC Universal. But I also, you know, they say it's like arm's length dealing and all that other stuff. But I, I really do wonder if that's gonna be something a big wave of the future, not just for for the movies and the self-dealing and, and what how do you monetize that library when you're not willing to sell it to a third party versus if you, if you actually are, you know, like, yeah, so I, I'm rambling here because I'm very curious about next steps here and how much of a fundamental change a lawsuit could bring about in this industry, not just with films, but with library deals, et cetera.
3: Now, the thing I'm curious about really is whether these movies can make an impact, you know, on the streaming service. I used the example of the Joker in the piece that I wrote that, you know, the Joker is a movie that. Uh, that the, Toby Emmerich, the head of the Warner Brothers Film Studio, didn't really like the idea of, tried to kill it by lowballing on the budget. Uh, Todd Phillips, the filmmaker, per- persevered, gets it made. It's a gigantic... You know, Toby had sold off half the va- of the property of the film to, uh, to other companies because he was so sure it would fail. It's, it was a billion-dollar grocer, 11 Academy Award nominations. If that thing had streamed on HBO Max uh, day and date and people were watching it at home would it have that impact? I think that's a question. I think series, and I, Jason Blum, again, who's on my show this this week, uh, he, he sort of, says, I think, agreed that series are more sticky on streamers than movies. You know, it, name one movie that was a giant cultural event, an iconic thing like Joker, that was a streaming movie. So, the theory is now, at warners that people will still go to the movies, even if it's available on their TV screen. I don't know what you guys think of that. I'm a little skeptical.
1: I mean, I'm just happy that I don't have to leave my house to watch, you know, some of these big movies. But and then I also think of, you know, things like like The Old Guard or The Kissing Booth and, you know, some of those, net, you know, the Netflix rom-coms that caught on. But that's the same kind of knock about series. You know, you, you know, Bloom says that, that TV shows are more sticky online, but when you're dropping them. All at you know all dropping all the episodes all at once. The the lifeline for for a show is a week. You know maybe you're, maybe you're in the cultural conversation for a week and then it's the next you move on to the next thing and and we've seen that with the box office right where you have one mega blockbuster that has staying power at number one at like an Avengers and then over the course of a few weeks it just continues to fade and then there, here's the next big thing you know or another superhero movie comes from another studio.
3: It's a much longer run for a hit movie yeah. in theaters much longer. Right. And people right. will go and, you know, I, I mean, the question is, can those theaters survive being treated this way? And the theory on the Silicon Valley side is, you know, yeah, they'll just be reborn and they'll be fine. It, I, I don't know if that's true. And if that if theaters go down, it, a lot of people get hurt in this industry, I think.
1: Yeah. And will, will Netflix finally release viewership? Like, will this the movie studios force, you know, will, will a lot of these producers like the Chris Nolans, force these streaming services like HBO Max to say, Here's how many people actually watch. Don't tell me, you know, oh, uh, you know, 65 million members watched at least two minutes of this trade. You know, like, don't you know? Yes, Jason Blum. Will this create also makes actual this transparency very with, much on with the same
3: page. Jason Blum is like, they have to give us meaningful data. This is ridiculous. We can't function this way either. We can't value our and and give us a piece of if we added uh, this many subscribers, give us something for that. And and you know, I think that it's really, you know, you go out and make inception it's not there are very few people no who thanks. Have that skill.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well kim thank you so much for joining us this week really appreciate it we know how busy
3: you are absolute pleasure thank you guys america we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights life liberty and the pursuit of happiness at grand canyon university we believe in equal opportunity and the american dream starts with purpose
2: Our guest this week created CBS's SEAL Team and previously wrote and produced on shows including Justified, Homeland and Sneaky Pete. Benjamin Cabell is now the showrunner on CBS All Access's new adaptation of Stephen King's epic novel The Stand, which premieres on December 17th. Welcome to the podcast, Benjamin.
5: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
2: So let's start by talking about the elephant with respiratory problems in the corner of the room. Um... (laughs) So you're working on a miniseries about the aftermath of a global pandemic, and you've been working on it for months, for years. Do you remember when in January or February you began to get the sense that suddenly the real world was intruding?
5: Well, ah uh, god. Does does anybody remember exactly when when they got the sense of I I still don't know when I got the sense of just how how bad and overwhelming it was going to be. Uh you know, how just fundamentally, I don't know, life-changing, world-changing it was going to be. Um thank you by the way for saying that the the stand is about the aftermath of a of a global pandemic because I I think I you know, I think people uh, I think people often think of The Stand as being a book about a pandemic. And I, I really don't feel that way. I, I really sort of feel that it's, it's, it's about, it's mostly about what comes after, which frankly is why, it, why we decided to tell it in this non linear way. You know, it, it, it felt like we didn't want to make people sit through three episodes of the world dying before we got to what I, what I believe, or have always have believed is really the meat of the novel, which is, you know, this, this, Struggle between the forces of Flag and the forces of Mother Abigail for the soul of the world that's left. But there still must have
2: been a moment at which you said, "Huh, this is beginning to sound a little bit too much like the prologue for our story."
5: Yes. Look, I, we, I, you know, it was very surreal. We were we were in Vancouver, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, just racing toward the end of production We actually wrapped production in Vancouver And not uh, It was when we were scheduled But we wrapped production in Vancouver on March 11th uh, Actually at daybreak on March 12th We shot all night And then, you know And we were supposed to go to Las Vegas The next week uh, To to pick up a bunch of our, our Vegas stuff And obviously that got shut down On March 13th When everything got shut down So I, I, I suppose uh, You know I don't know, until until really they they shut us down and it was clear that, you know, people were going to have to go into lockdown. And, you know, that 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 moment in March, I suppose, is really when when it hit, because look, Vancouver for a while was was doing quite well. And, you know, every everybody was aware of Covid And there were posted notices and, you know, wash your hands and, and try to, you know, whatever. I mean, it was sort of basic public health notices. But I, I don't know. I don't know whether it was because we were in Canada or or what. But they people did not seem to be panicked uh, leading up to it. And then obviously, you know, and instead of going to Vegas on March 12th, uh, after we wrapped in the morning, we we flew to Los Angeles hoping that we would. I, uh, you know, go to Vegas at some point and we ended up going to Vegas, but not until late August. So, yeah, you
1: know, I, and I do want to back up a little bit before, you know, obviously before the pandemic. But Dan kind of alluded to this, but The Stand has been in the works for a very long time. It started as a feature. Yes. Um, there was a previous take with David Yates and Ben Affleck uh, with, a um in a, in a larger sense, you know, why do you think this beloved novel has had such a challenged road to the screen?
5: I well, I it's a challenging uh, it's a challenging adaptation. I mean, I I frankly look. I know you know all all these various groups of people had tried to do it as a feature many times, even many times since they made the first miniseries. I mean, George Romero tried to do it as a feature. Even you know back back in the day, I I frankly I don't know how you do it as a feature. I never tried to do it as a feature. I I can't even really wrap my head around it. I mean, I you know cramming it so to speak into nine episodes felt like a, a difficult task. I you know the idea of translating I don't know a twelve hundred page novel into a into a single feature is just sort of I. I yeah, I, I don't even know where where one would begin. It feels like, I it, it frankly, I mean, it, it's interesting that you say why it's had such a such a difficult road to adaptation. I I sort of think it's because I I regard these new really high end limited series as a kind of new medium almost. I mean, it, they are a sort of hybrid of TV and features, and I think you know a uh, a kind of nine hour movie with, you know, feature level cast and budget is what's required to do justice to that novel. And that, at least as far as I know, that really didn't exist until Quite recently, I mean, I, I know a lot of people date it from the the first season of True Detective as being, you know, the the thing that really showed everyone, oh, you can do this. You can you can have these big stars who would never sign on for a you know an ongoing series, and you can have these sort of movie style budgets, and you know, and and really tell a uh, you know an eight hour nine hour movie with uh, with chapters. Certainly, I mean, each episode stands alone, but it it really does feel like they're all of a piece. And that's that's new, I think, at this level. Yeah.
1: You know, and then now, of course, as Dan mentioned, you're you're launching this show about the aftermath of a pandemic kind of at a time where we are hoping to get out of this. We're hoping that the vaccine gets us out of of our current state, you know, and and we saw kind of a little bit of that transpire with Amazon's Utopia, which was a show kind of about a global pandemic that launched during a global pandemic, similarly based on on some popular IP. That was canceled after after one season. But I I wonder, was there any discussion about delaying the debut of this, maybe even using this as a splash for when CBS All Access is rebranded as Paramount Plus next year?
5: Well, there was certainly no discussion with me uh, about that. They I they may have discussed that internally. I would not be surprised. But look, I you know, I know that I contagion and, and outbreak and there, you know, there are certain things that are kind of that have pandemic at their center that that became really popular touchstones during during this period that people wanted the escape of watching somebody else go through an even worse version of what what we're going through. So, uh, you know, again, I, I I look if people are looking for that, I, I certainly hope they they find that with us. But I also again i i I don't really feel like this is a pandemic story as strange as that is to say you know it's it's so much more about the other side of it and and I hope that there's there's some hope that that comes from that I mean that these people are confronted by a situation quite clearly a situation that's so much worse i mean no matter how how awful covid has been continues to be and how just mind ah, mind numbingly awful the the, the effect and, and the loss, you know, it, it, it can't be as bad as what these people are going to where, you know, the entire world, except for, you know, very small handful of people has been wiped out. Um, but I, I take some hope in the way that even, even in those circumstances, these, these people in this story are able to transcend, you know, that they, that they are able to start to rebuild and 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 to push back against the forces of flag and I you know I find some inspiration in it
2: well even viewing this as not being a show about a pandemic there are lots of scenes of people coughing and 100%. people and people expelling large amounts of disgusting stuff as you are sort of in the editing process did you trim back the amount of that that you that you had? Did the focus go more towards the the middle and end
5: of the narrative and away from the start? You know, we really didn't. I I I suppose that may sound strange, but uh, I I frankly I, I've never wanted. Not at any point did I want to sort of rub people's faces in the the horror of. Of Captain Trips. At the same time, it was very important to me, to us. You know, look, we we know what we know how beloved this this book is. It's it's beloved for us and and iconic. And we we really set ourselves the task of, you know, of rendering the disease as it's described in the book, you know, that, that we're, we're going to give you tube necks and we're going to, you know, we're going to make them horrifying and, and organic and with a combination of, you know, prosthetics and VFX and, but, but we're really gonna, gonna take what's described in the book and try to really ground it in a, in a, in a reality, but without, without kind of going away from, from what's there. So, you know, we, we didn't want to be dishonest and not you know, not show it. And I, or dishonest is maybe wrong because I know the the original miniseries doesn't really show much of the disease, but I I've always put that off to the, the idea that they just weren't able to, to do it in a, in a way that would have read as anything but comical. I mean, not with, not with those, not with the VFX that were available to them at, at, at that time. Um, And, you know, I, I think one of the, one of the really exciting things about this is that we're in a position technologically where we can just, we can do that and, and, and have it be, you know, uh, have it be horrifying, but also, you know, have people who know the book and love the book and are wanting to see a tube neck think, oh yeah, no, that is, that is as described, that is a tube neck. <laughs> and I, that is the way a tube neck would look if I saw one in real life. So, and, and mo- yeah. mo-
2: Like mostly I didn't get hung up on it, but there was, it's, I think it was the emergency room scene with Larry in the second episode. Yes, and and I'm wondering if that's a scene in particular where you know a chaotic New York City emergency room, doctors in PPE, all of that. If that was something where you sort of had a a moment.
5: Uh, I yes, I had a moment. I actually had a moment when we were in that hospital filming that night. Um, you know, it, because we were already I, I can't even remember what. What month that was, but we were already starting to get stories certainly from from italy and and it was just starting i guess to break out in New York at that point. I was struck by I was struck by the some similarities to some of the some of the pictures that were coming out, but at the same time I, you know i i don 't think no certainly nobody ever pressured me but i I, I never really felt compelled to. To try to pull it back, just because you know versions of some of this were happening in in the world, I I I don't know that I, I I don't know that I really trust that that instinct. I mean, I I get it when when people do it, and in the wake of a of a certain kind of tragedy, if if people pull episodes that seem too close to that, I I, I sort of understand it. But this idea that I I don't know that we can only experience things that are completely divorced from from any reality. I I just I, I just don't don't subscribe to it really. I don't feel it.
2: Well okay you talked earlier about the changes you guys made in the structure here and and sort of for want of a better word, the structure of the book feels to me like it's been kind of lostified to me, sort of the the taking of the individual stories per episode, etc. cetera. When did you realize you wanted to restructure the book and how much conversation did it take for you to figure out how you wanted to
5: restructure it? Well, so uh, I, I knew that we needed to restructure it from from the beginning. I mean, I, as 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 I said, you know, I, I I the idea of making people sit through three episodes of that uh, of of the world dying and also you know, I, I love contagion. I mean, I, uh, Steven Soderbergh is, you know, an, an idol of mine and it just felt like, well, we're not going to do it better than that. So why, why, why would we show the, the sort of the slow roll of a, of a pandemic when, again, that's not, it's not really what our story fundamentally is about. So, so, you know, the, it's funny that you say it's Lostified because, you know, I, those guys and Lindelof have been very upfront about the idea that Lost is sort of a, a wholesale ripoff of the stand. I mean, he, he may not have said wholesale ripoff, but he certainly said that they were more than a little bit inspired by it. And that, in fact, as as you can go through the characters and in, in Lost and sort of trace them back to their their stand avatars, you know, that that. Uh, Obviously, that's that's baked into the DNA, I suppose, now of both things. Yeah. So I don't know if I think of it as much as lostified as just um, I don't know what. But 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 certainly as taking the taking our our narrative spine as being the story of the the rebuilding and of and of people kind of coalescing into these two camps behind Mother Abigail and flag and flashing back to the virus to sort of see some of the ways in which they've gotten to where they are. Yeah.
1: You know, my, my questions, you know, Dan's t- uh, uh, talked a lot about structure. My question for you is, you know, we're in a landscape where so many shows that are billed as limited or mini. That's just a a fancy way of saying these are not going to 24 episode shows, but it doesn't really say anything about if this is really truly closed ended. So my question for you is in success, and obviously you're on a streaming service, so who knows what that success really is, but is the stand something that is a renewable property, whether it's the flagship, the show that we are going to see this month, renewed for a second season or a spin-off, etc. Like, what are your, your plans? I mean, you've said this is, you know, a, a vast property.
5: Yeah, I I mean, I don't I don't have plans for that. I, I wouldn't I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't close myself off to it, but it would have to be somebody would have to I would have to we would have to have an idea. I mean, that is it's not worth doing unless you figure out a way to do it that feels really new and groundbreaking and interesting. And, and obviously King would have to not just sign off on that idea, but really, you know, he, he would have to spark to it in the same way. So, you know, it, if, if those things came together, then, I mean, of course it's a, it's a conversation, but I, I, you know, we, we never, we never talked about sort of leaving it open for, for more. I mean, we, we set out to do the book and actually to, to do the book and to end at a, at a place. Well, we knew where we wanted to end. And when King, uh, when King decided that he was going to you know, write this coda that he'd been planning for 30 years and was going to trust us to to make it and to have that be the ninth episode of the show. That was, you know, our discussion was sort of, OK, well, where are you guys leaving it? You know, and and so where where will I then get to pick it up? I mean, is was was essentially the, the conversation he and I had. And, uh, you know, I I feel like as far as I'm concerned, as far as he's concerned, at least as far as I know, we've we've sort of ended it in a in a way that satisfies us. But again, I mean, you know, he's Stephen King. If he has an idea for how to for how to continue this or for how to take it in another direction. And by the way, I mean, obviously, the universe, uh, the King universe uh, includes people who, a beer in the stand and then a beer in various other places. So it it certainly has a life outside of this one book. If I don't know, if there is a will, if there is a, if if there is an idea about how to, how to do that. Um, But it also doesn't need it. And, and it was, it was important to me certainly that, you know, the the viewer not require knowledge of you know any any other piece of the king universe any of the other places in which flag or a version of flag appears you know that that really does not play into this story uh, whether it whether it exists in the in the larger universe of this story is a question for for every one of us and it certainly can.
2: Well, now, how does that conversation go with Stephen King? You know, you you know what the book is, you know where the book ends, you know where you want to end it. How does he come around to saying, oh, by the way, there's been something I've been wanting to do. Can I give you my new ending?
5: <laughs> well, yes, I he I mean, I, I suppose it was more like, you know, him kind of mentioning, well, you know, there there is this thing that's always eaten at me about the end of the book. And I and I have this this story that I've been thinking about you know, in terms of what comes after. It's like, oh, oh, do you? That's that's very interesting. Well, why don't you tell us about that? And then, you know, he 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 really didn't tell me much about it before he wrote it, except that he, you know, he was excited enough about what we were doing with the show and the direction that we were taking it in and sort of the 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 aesthetic that we were uh, that we were using. And, and uh, you know, he. He was excited enough about that that he said, "Okay, yeah, I want to I want to do this. I want to write this coda. And then, uh, you know, I my question essentially was just, "Okay, well, what do you need from us? I mean, you know, what what do you need? Because obviously I want to do everything possible to make that happen. So, you know, he said, I just need to know, you know, where where you're ending up and then I'll know where I can take over. And it was like, all right, perfect. Let's do that. (laughs) And and speaking of, of changes from the book,
2: I, I hadn't read the book in probably about 25 years. And going back to it now, it's striking that as big as the ensemble is, it's a very masculine ensemble and it's a kind of ridiculously white ensemble. Yes. how Was that the kind of thing where you immediately went, OK, clearly we cannot do this. We yeah. have to make these changes.
5: So so yes, but yes. And not just not just for cosmetic Reasons. I mean, I I think part of part of the pleasure of the book is that it it is so grounded in the reality of 1978, you know, of of when it was written. And uh, in order to do a righteous adaptation of it, we felt I felt that it had, you know, our show had to be just as grounded in the world of 2019 or 2020. And if uh, you know, if you're making a story that's set in. In 2019 America, I think your your cast needs to look like 2019 America. I mean, this is a, you know, a, a universal story about a, a thing that affects everybody and that, that everybody is living through. And it just it, it just felt like it, it, it was so much richer if we didn't have it all white and male in our in our main cast.
2: And, and along those lines, there are a lot of characters who are in treatment on the page pretty much relics of a different era. When you looked at Nick and Tom Cullen in particular, how did you want to adjust those characters for 2020?
5: Yeah, well, Tom, Tom Cullen in particular, um, you know, in in the book, I, I, I the, the Tom Cullen character in the book is, I, I, I've always thought of him sort of as Lenny from Of Mice and Men, just kind of transposed into, into this book. Uh, you know, he, he kind of embodies that that old idea about, oh, a child trapped in an adult body, right? But I, my experience uh, with people who have developmental disabilities is that 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 doesn't really exist, that sort of child trapped in an adult body, right? I mean, I, we, at least in the way that I think of it, which just, I think of it as, as when you say child, you mean a sort of lack of self-awareness that is, you know, a child trapped in an adult body is like, doesn't, doesn't really understand that they are different from everybody else. But in my experience, developmentally disabled adult is under no, uh, is not in the dark about whether they are you know, the same as, as the majority of people around them or, or, and not in the dark about their deficits. I mean, they, they understand that they have deficits or challenges or, you know, or, or just cognitive difficulties or whatever that most people don't have. And, you know, they find ways to transcend them. And it, it felt like that to me, that was the, the sort of the, the key thing to bring out about Tom, that this is a, this is an adult man who's been, you know, presumably before. Captain Tripp's finding some way to to exist in the world and to get along and to, uh, you know, if if not be employed in in a conventional sense to support himself somehow and feed himself and clothe himself. I mean, he he appears to be wearing clothes that he that he likes about with Dolly Parton on them and, and the Oklahoma Sooners. And just so we we all of which is to say, you know, I. Uh, It was I I found that speech, this sort of memorized speech for for Tom, in which he he, you have the sense that this this is part of the way that he has navigated the world is that he he's memorized a kind of, you know, a spiel about this is my name is Tom Cullen. I'm I'm this old. I'm developmentally disabled. Please don't be alarmed by my behavior. I have difficulty reading social cues. I'm able to work. I can follow simple instructions. I can't read, you know, the kind of thing that. I, a developmentally disabled adult who is, you know, in the world and has to has to make a living and get along would presumably have to be able to say to the people he meets. And, and you know, in talking to Brad William Hankey, who was, by the way, my not not just my first my only choice my only call for the role i you know it, it, all all of this was very important to him you know brad played uh he played at least one season in the nfl and and uh obviously played college football played in the cfl but all of which is to say he has um some friends who have some really pretty serious um head trauma you know cte issues and and one in particular who he sh- who's who uh, had me had a documentary made about him, and Brad Brad showed me some of it, and it, you know it was really very touching and affecting. And one of the things that that his friend said to him at some point was he he pointed to his head and said, you know, in in here it's still me, and I just found that I found that heartbreaking, but also you know I I found that to be sort of support for what what we were doing, which was trying to really be honest and 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 to. To make this guy into uh, a grown-up who happens to have these these deficits that he is he's trying to overcome.
1: And you know, wrapping up here, we always do like to end our interviews here with the same question: What are you watching and enjoying?
5: Oh God! At, at this point, <laughs> I'm watching uh, the last couple episodes of The Stand over and over <laughs> for color and sound and VFX. Um, well, we just we just watched The Queen's Gambit, which I which I love. I mean, Scott Frank is, God, he's, he's so brilliant. You know, we, I, I I wrote on Justified for six seasons and Scott Frank was a touchstone for us because Elmore Leonard, uh, you know, has, has been adapted not as many times as Stephen King, but he's been adapted so many times and almost none of them is good. Uh, but the Scott Frank adaptations are, you know, the really special ones. I mean, he really, he really gets that. And it's a, uh, you know, it's a testament to his ability as, as a writer, but you know, Scott Frank was such a, such a figure for us when we were making Justified, especially at the beginning when we were thinking, wait, how do you do this? How do you imitate this sound of this Elmore Leonard dialogue? And I was like, well, Scott Frank seems to know how to do it. Let's <laughs> let's look at that. So I, you know, I, yes, I just love, love everything Scott Frank does. And I love the Queen's Gambit. Excellent. Well, thank you
2: so much for joining us, Benjamin. We appreciate
5: it. Thank you, guys. What a pleasure.
1: Thank you. The Stand premieres December 17th on CBS All Access.
5: Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's high profile new launches are The Wilds on Amazon, the new season of Pennyworth on Epix, The Expanse returns on Amazon, And then you've got The Stand on CBS All Access and Homeschool Musical, Class of 2020 on HBO Max.
2: That is definitely some stuff. Um, The Stand, for the record, is uh, still currently under embargo. So there will be no review in this podcast. Perhaps I will talk about it a little bit next week after it's premiered. Uh, So that means probably the biggest thing still left is The Wilds on Amazon, um, which is – best way to describe it is it's the society meets the island. Uh, And one of those two things is reasonably positive, and the other one is about as negative as I would have any way of conveying. Um, I would say it is much closer to being along the lines of the society than, uh, than the island. So Take that as you will. The premise of the story is basically a group of teenage girls are flying to Hawaii for a strange new age teenage girl retreat. It's a little hard to explain what they're actually doing, but they're on an airplane and the airplane crashes somewhere and the girls wash up on an island and very quickly things begin to go haywire. Uh, You will be shocked to know that the girls are... Connected to something and that the island isn't exactly what it seems. And you don't yeah. say, Dan. I, as I'm i trying to avoid spoiling things too much. Um, <laughs> I, I watched I watched a, a handful of episodes and I will finish it because I am curious. I don't think I am gripped thus far. There's a lot of really clunky, expositional writing. But again, you know, going back, if, if one of my points of comparison is The Island, I have to say it is not as clunky or as expositional as The Island. So uh, still available to watch on Netflix. They haven't stricken that one from the platform entirely. Maybe they should. Uh, the, the ensemble cast of young actresses is, is, I would say it is a mixed assortment. They are mostly relative unknowns. Uh, and you know the the main cast member people would know is Rachel Griffiths who has a role that I really can't describe and so she definitely pops up uh, you'll you'll notice her in an orientation video for the strange teenage girl retreat in Hawaii so so there's that. Uh, the actor in this, actually, who I was most excited to see is Helena Howard, who indie film fans will know from Madeline's Madeline, which premiered at Sundance a couple of years ago, uh, received rave reviews. She in particular, that was her first acting role, and she was just phenomenal in it. Um, and this is really her first follow-up role, and she's very good. And and some of the other young actresses are are good as well. And this is also the kind of show where... The twists could mean that some of the things that I'm finding odd in the performances in episodes, say two and three, maybe those are actually character details that will be revealed as surprises in later episodes. So maybe someone, you know, with the Southern accents isn't necessarily supposed to be convincingly Southern. Who the heck knows? Or maybe it's a bad accent. Who knows? Anyway, there were exactly enough questions and themes that were raised in the early episodes to keep me curious I don't know that it's good to good enough to have me excited about it, but I definitely think it is it is watchable and interesting. And it's of a certain kind of show where if you like The Society, which was also a a clunky and occasionally expositional show, not like it's the example of television perfection for YA audiences. uh, Yeah, I I think that there's an audience out there that will be interested in uh, The Wilds if they find it, which is on Amazon.
1: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. And you can catch Dan on this week's episode of Must Watch, the Netflix edition hosted by a friend of the five, Gene Bentley. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We will be back next week with a jam-packed year in review episode where we will be joined by the flight attendant star and executive producer, Kaylee Cuoco, who will help us celebrate the end of 2020 and our 100th episode.
2: Be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because it really does help spread the word of mouth and improve search optimization and all that fun stuff. Uh, we are always on Twitter and happy to get your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns uh, for future mailbag segments. Unclear when that'll be, but you know dare to dream, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan.